you know, people say, so what do you do? And I say, oh, you know, I study kind of aspects of the sex industry. I'm interested in the production, regulation, and consumption of the sex industry. And that ranges from everything from uh, adult stores through to online pornography. Hello, I'm Dallas Rogers. Welcome to City Road. And today, two middle-class white men talking about porn. Well, kind of. I'm talking with Paul McGinn about sex and the city. I'm Paul McGinn. I'm the program coordinator for the Masters of Urban Regional Planning at the University of Western Australia uh, in Perth. Paul McGinn, welcome to City Road Podcast. G'day Dallas, it feels quite surreal actually being in the hot seat here on the City Road Podcast, on, on the, on the, the podcast side. of urban podcasts. <laughs> so you've been doing some research for a little while now about how the sex industry, so brothels and sex shops, kind of appear in the urban landscape, how they're regulated in the urban landscape. And I guess more recently, you've been doing some work about porn star migration. How did you come to this question? Good question. Very good question. I think um, there's probably two primary parts to this. So one is personal and one's kind of professional academic. So if I take the uh, second one first, um, a lot of my research has been on, I suppose, minority kind of group issues or controversial or contentious policy issues and groups. So I started off my academic career as a research assistant on a project looking at um, Irish travellers and looking at their housing arrangements in in Northern Ireland. Uh, I did my PhD on urban regeneration, community participation and the kind of the, I suppose, the significance of race in urban regeneration processes in London. Um, I've done stuff on racism in housing. So I'm, I've always been kind of drawn, I think, to, you know, let's call them contentious rather than controversial issues, uh, which play out in space. Um, and on the first issue, I suppose, on the personal side, I always say to people, I think, Part of it is because of my Catholic upbringing and particularly around the issues of kind of sex and sexuality being a, a taboo topic mm. and kind of hidden, hidden and not discussed. Um, and of course, when you come across sex and sexuality, when it's being hidden from you, you're intrigued by it. Mm. And so I got... I, I think that's a kind of a driver. But when I was in my PhD in London and go out at night and I'd go to Soho and kind of look at the kind of the, what we called in our book, suburban sexscapes. Oh, I didn't know it was that at the time. But there was a very clear sexualized urban landscape in London. And when I moved to Australia, and particularly when I moved to Adelaide, I noticed all these sex shops and strip clubs on Hindley Street. And, the, and I was like, this is Adelaide, the city of churches. And I was like, 
this is really interesting. So that that's when it piqued my kind of curiosity. Mm. Uh, so that and that was in two thousand and five when I moved to Adelaide. Mm. And some of your early work was about the regulation, almost the urban planning rules around where you can put brothels, sex shops. Talk us through some of that. So let's take sex shops first. Mm. So the word shop is in that title. And what's really interesting in planning regulations is a sex shop is not defined as a shop under normal planning regulations. So the term that's used, uh, the formal planning term that tends to be used is a restricted premise. Um, and so planners treat it as a special category of land use and a, essentially a special category of retailing. So it's, a, it's, not a sh it's not a real shop somehow. And that's because of the products uh, that they've sold and I mean, this dates back to, I mean, the first sex shops in Australia basically emerged in the early 1970s. So Barbara Sullivan's book, I think it's The Politics of Sex, uh, if, I got, if I've got the title right, kind of highlights when sex shops emerged in Australia in the 1970s. There's been some earlier stuff looking at Soho in London and sex shops emerging there in like in the 19, late 1960s. So I'm intrigued by the regulations and I'm intrigued that planners try to control something which essentially the market in terms of demand from us and we're all the we as consumers are the market so to speak the planning's going one way and by planning i mean both the political side of planning and the bureaucratic side of planning yet the market or social reality is going another way mm. and, I and i kind of think there's an interesting conflict and dilemma there mm. you know where yeah very interesting and i wonder you know obviously we're getting into kind of morality here so how morality and what's good and not good would inform how we regulate certain activities in the urban landscape how does and i, I guess that that's not uncommon in urban planning i think we make assessments all the time about what's good and bad and we plan in certain ways but i think that there's something unique here is there well, no and yes, rather than me saying yes and no, I'm going to say no. I mean, the first thing that I think my approach to this and thinking around it is, is that cities are sexual spaces. You know, the fact that they grow demographically, well, A, migration fuels it, but ultimately we're all the products of sexual activity. You know, mm. we're not, well, not yet made in robot factories. Mm. Um, so by, by the very definition, cities are, are sexual, very sexualized spaces, mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. They are the creation of, uh, of our sexual proclivities. But I think the morality does come in on the, more on the political side of planning decision-making. It's, it's the, our political leaders, our political elected members, particularly at local council levels, who make these decisions and who are the moral arbiters mm -hmm. of what they think is good and bad in a city but again i would kind of contend that you know there's this demand going on in the real world and, maybe and talk about that talk about the market because i guess that's the other side of this you have the morality that says things are good or bad and we'll regulate them as such and then we have the market on the other side tell us about the market 
Well, if you look taking sex shops again as an example, uh, so when they, I suppose the early sex shops or the first sex shops were, in terms of a market, were very much masculine spaces. You know, they would sell pornographic materials and that would be, you know, it could be postcards, it could be magazines, it could be reel-to-reel film, you know. Um, but they were very much kind of masculine spaces. So it was seen as a, you know, male consumers only in many senses. And that's a stereotype. Um, but over time, adult shops, sex shops have morphed into, you know, all sorts of, serving all sorts of kind of different markets. Um, so you, you go from the, what we called in our book, seedy and sleazy adult stores, you know, which are in back alleyways and blacked out windows with neon signs, which are the product, that design, that aesthetic is actually ultimately a product of planning regulations, um, which perversely draws more attention to these type of spaces when planners are trying to render them invisible, it's basically you know you can't have a pro- you can't have a, win- a proper window display. You got to black out your windows, and it it actually makes them more visible in the landscape. It's a kind of planning paradox, and you now have um, stores which cater for basically couples. You know whether they're straight or queer. Uh, you have specialist shops which just cater to queer markets, and then you have stores which just cater to women whether they're straight or queer women as well. So so the market has fractured in wonderful ways, I think, and, and kind of evolved over time. And and with that, the the geography, the spatiality of those stores have have all have also changed. So the Amber Martin UK academic who's done stuff on this um, highlights the kind of moving from the back streets to the high streets, like chap title of our chapter in our book. And so there's a mainstreaming, there's a spatial mainstreaming and ultimately, there's a social mainstreaming, and therefore, there's a market mainstreaming. Mm. You're a geographer. How do you go about researching this? What's the methodological toolkit for researching in this space? I guess it's quite broad. I suppose it's um, no matter where I go. So if I go anywhere, if I go to a conference in a city, whether it's here in Australia, you know, or if I go to the AAG in the US, it's. I'm constantly on alert. Where does the suburban sexscape materialize? And, you know, whether it be signage, you know, big billboards advertising a strip club, which is two miles down the road, or if it's an adult store that's on a high, on a shopping high street somewhere or whatever it might be, basically. So I, I'm always kind of constantly just alert to this and kind of, you know, I constantly grab photographs to kind of look at, you know the I suppose the emerging trends and the type of stores that exist. So that might be you know you might call it kind of um, street ethnography or something like that. There, mm. it's very ca- I mean it's very casual. Mm. Um, but I mean some of the stuff that we've we did looking at kind of mapping adult stores was online. We did you know we did big online searches trying to get the names of stores, their location, you know in terms of street, suburb, and so forth, and then. I mean, tools like Google Earth or Near Map allow you to zoom in and look at these places from anywhere in the world. Mm. So we did we, we did some mapping and exploring of adult shops in Sydney and Perth, for example. And then what we did was kind of started to classify them. So we had this classification of, as I said, city and sleazy, mainstream and kind of boutique uh, stores. We went for the simple 
broad classification. And then by looking at the stores online and stuff, and if they have a web presence, that would give us clues as to you know what their markets were and what they how how they were projecting themselves. Mm. You know, so so you get that first general mapping, and then what we would do is we'd look at the local planning schemes, you know, in the relevant local councils, and kind of look at well, what's the what's the planning geography around this? Are they in a residential zone or are they in a mixed use zone or are they in a business zone? And so we build up a picture of that and then we look at the what the policy might say around restricted premises to kind of see what what the regulatory contours are basically around whether it's sex shops or brothels or strip clubs or bdsm venues and things like that basically you're listening to city road on 2ser 107.3 fm in sydney I'm talking with Paul McGinn about how the planning system deals with and regulates the sex industries in our cities. I'm going to ask Paul in a minute about some of the critiques of his work, and particularly the feminist critiques about sexualized cities. And if you're looking for a bit more in this space, I talked to Nicole Clams last year about her work on hypersexualized cities. It's a good companion episode to our discussion here. It's called Gender and Cities, and you can find it at cityroadpod.org. Now, back to our conversation. You've also done some work on the porn industry and migration as well. So porn stars migrating, I guess, interstate, but also internationally. Tell us about that work. So... I mean, this feeds into my kind of geog- some of my earlier kind of geography research and looking at uh, and co- general geography questions around migration. And because I've been doing this stuff on the sex industry, and I started to you know raise questions in my own head about the geography of the porn industry. And so I actually started off. I came up with this idea of doing some podcasts. Mm. Uh, so I had this podcast idea, which is called carpool triple x porn performers as a migrant community and i was taking a cue from um carpool karaoke essentially mm. not that i want to do the karaoke part because i can't sing <laughs> you know um but it, you never know if, until you give it a go well no i know <laughs> i i know but so i i kind of come up with this kind of concept idea and i thought you know the the epicenter of kind of mainstream porn production is the San Fernando Valley in uh, Los Angeles and there's the big porn expo the AVN the Adult Video News Porn Expo uh, Adult Entertainment Expo which happens in January so I was at one of the AVNs because I've got some connections with some colleagues at uh, University of Nevada Las Vegas and I interviewed a couple of handful of performers there and I wanted to ask them about their migration experience because I see porn performers as a minority migrant community because most people who who go to to be in the porn industry in uh, LA are either interstate Americans or they're international they come from the UK or they come from Europe or and even Australia Um, so I was intrigued thinking about how geographers have looked at migration you know migrant communities is there a similar 
narrative and kind of experience there with porn performers in terms of things like clustering. So we know with other migrant groups, they tend to cluster in certain neighborhoods. So I came up with this concept of porno burbs. It was that kind of little conceptual idea. Um, and then I was also things that other migrant groups experience in terms of housing. You know, can you get into housing markets? Uh, and we know that minority groups, ethnic minority groups, racial minority groups from different er from different backgrounds, have some terrible experiences in terms of trying to access housing markets and rental and stuff because they're discriminated because of their racial and ethnic background. And porn performers face that same experience essentially uh, because of their labor, mm. you know? So I was intrigued, you know, I wanted to explore, do those type of things happen? And then also were there social spaces where as a minority community, because there's relatively few people who are in, who do porn, did they hang out in certain spaces? Now, with migrant groups, it might be a community center. They might set up a community center somewhere in a, you know, a building, or they might, it might be a place of worship. Where do porn performers go? You know, what's, what are the spaces that they inhabit and can build social capital? So I was really interested in trying to, to develop those. And um, So the methodology really is that you get... Uh, a performer in the car, you drive around in the car, you're videoing it and audio recording it, you're having a discussion about their experience, and you're kind of using that kind of video podcasting as method, basically. Yeah, basically, and it's it's not about porn. The thing is, it's, you know, it's not about the porn. It's about their migrant journey. And so the, 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 the podcast that I that I recorded in Las Vegas were actually, they weren't done in the car because uh, I was intervie interviewing performers who were working at the AVN Expo. So I couldn't get, get them out in a car and drive around Vegas, and although that was the plan. But we did a bunch of interviews on the rooftop of the Hard Rock uh, Hotel and Casino where the Expo's held. And then I was back in LA the kind of the next year and I did, I did manage to do uh three or four interviews in the car driving around the valley and, and would the aim be to kind of get them to narrate the landscape for you to show you things in the landscape that are important to talk about maybe the porno burb or the services they use or places that are safe or not safe or is that the aim or is literally just the aim to drive around is that a, is that a space that's conducive for the conversation yeah i mean so we're in California, so driving's you know the thing to do. Um, so there were so, and I I wanted to drive because it's it speaks to the the, the idea of movement and mm. migrating. So it was kind of really a trope or a metaphor to kind of discuss mo their mobility, um, and it's just a, a novel. I thought it was just a you know, you know, a novel way looking the the carpool karaoke thing without the karaoke. It would be a good way of doing it, basically, as well. Mm -hmm. um, but there were elements of driving around um, the when I, we drove around the valley that you know the performers and directors. So uh, I, I interviewed um, a performer called Kira Noir, uh, a performer and director called Dana Vespoli, and a, a director uh, called Mike Quasar, and. So it was about their overall migrant journey. But then as we were driving around, they would kind of point out spaces, you know, that say, you know, that bar, this cat, this restaurant is, you know, on a Friday, this is where performers will hang out. 
are driving around and the valley is quite a large space but they would say you know so in that apartment block you know i know a bunch of performers who live in this apartment block um and they would tell other stories about kind of you know um how the valley had changed and how porn actually had started to uh, the industry had started to actually migrate so vegas had become a a location a hub for for porn production as well so there were interesting dynamics going on about kind of the restructuring of the industry although the valley um still retains its its uh role as the 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 epicenter of porn production mainstream porn production mm. I want to ask you about why this is important for urban planning and urban planners. But before we go there, I imagine you get a lot of negative reactions to some of your work, which could span both kind of conservative ideas around, you know, having sex in the city um, on display like this to other like feminist critiques about the porn industry as well. How do you address, deal with those types of questions and I guess critiques of the work um if we look at kind of adult shops so these things exist in the landscape they're there right in front of us in the same way that sex work is you know in terms of whether that's street-based sex work or brothel-based sex work or if it's other types of indoor sex work which might be kind of stripping and and BDSM and stuff like this so from a planning perspective, you know, these land uses, when, they're, when they materialize as a, as a land use in a way, you know, uh, if they're in some kind of building, clearly there's a, there's a planning dimension comes up for that, you know, uh, about how these land uses could and should be regulated. I mean, planning has evolved and as a kind of a professional practice and, and as a regulatory process of separating land uses out to try to stop you know, the kind of what's called the negative secondary effects, you know, so you don't put a residential development beside a nuclear plant or beside an industrial plant, you know, so you separate out land uses. And I think that, you know, the, coming back to your, your comment about morality, you know, people think that, okay, you can't have an adult store or a sex shop near residential areas because it'll have some kind of negative secondary effect. But yet people are demanding the products which are in here they want to use them for whatever it might be um so but, but for me i think it's you know these land uses and these activities these sexual activities that and you know the sexualities of the city they invariably provoke questions from different quarters a lot of it tends to be negative and my i think my role has been to you know to try to add evidence to this to uh, both kind of demystify and ultimately destigmatize people who either work in different aspects of the sex industry and people who consume it as well. So in terms of adult stores, again, you know, people, you know, you were a, the old city in Silesia adult stores where, you know, it was frequented by the Dirty Mac Brigade, you know, and those men were seen as pervert perverts and stuff like this but it's very clear that you know uh, the evolution of adult retailing shows that men women trans people you know are exploring their their sexuality and I th the, the way i kind of describe it is is that sexual 
consumership is a reflection also of sexual citizenship that exists in the city you know and that's that's reflected in the type of sexual spaces that manifest that gives an so when you see a queer bar or a queer club for example that gives us a, an idea of the queer communities exist in cities and they have a place in cities um and you know when you see, when brothels appear you know it speaking to different form you know or people who are, involved, who are engaging in sex work and there are questions obviously about well why are they you know people say well why are they engaging in sex work and there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons kind of why people d- d- you know engage in you know what i always term as consensual sex work because if it's not consensual then it's it's exploitative basically you know so um i get i, I tend to get more funny looks from people you know and even some colleagues you know would think don't see it as kind of serious scholarship i think mm. in some ways so, so tell us why it is i think i mean you've partly explained that i think i part, i think you've partly explained why we need to understand as urban planners and urbanists about how these industries manifest in a physical sense but in a cultural sense in our cities what what do we take away from this i still think there's a you know there's a kind of a prudishness and and an embarrassment that kind of sits around this stuff, you know, it it does provoke, you know, either sniggers and tittering from people, and in some ways, when you kind of want to talk, when you kind of mention, you know, people say, "So what do you do?" And I say, "Oh, you know, I study kind of aspects of the sex industry." Um, but at the same time, then people are then curious, mm-hmm. you know. So it, it's initially it's kind of like, "Really, you do what?" And then it's kind of like, well, so what do you do? You know, so what do you actually do in that space? And it, like I said, it's it is about adding evidence to the social reality of urban landscapes in terms of the type of things that exist there. You know, and trying to identify, you know, and and show that cities are wonderfully rich, diverse, dynamic spaces, and sexuality is just one measure of getting a, you know, a a handle on how our cities in a physical sense but the inhabitants of cities how we're evolving and changing and and how people claim parts of the city and struggle to claim parts of the city as well you know when you look at you know where queer spaces might be you know in terms of them being in marginal locations or where brothels might be regulated to for example so um if they're in industrial locations and in peripheral you know they're they're you're putting workers, you know, who, who work in there, whether they're sex workers or even the receptionist and other people, you know, the cleaner that might work there, you're putting them in kind of, you know, awkward positions and, and even dangerous locations to be working in, basically. And, you know, we need to, I think, think more harder about, you know, uh, about the issues that surround people who occupy those, uh, those spaces and who work in those uh, professions. Paul McGinn, it's been so good to have you on the show. Tell us, um, I'm really honoured to be in the hot seat for City Road Podcast. It's great. Excellent. Thank you very much. Have a good flight back to Perth. I will indeed. I like this setup.
You've been listening to City Road on 2SER 107.3 FM. I've been talking to Paul McGinn about how the planning system deals with and regulates the sex industries in our cities. And as I mentioned in this episode, you should also check out the interview I did with Nicole Clams earlier this year. You can find it all at cityroadpod.org. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you later.